In April 2015, Vincent Villafort and his girlfriend, Angelica Griswold, went kayaking on the Hudson River in New York. During the trip, Vincent's kayak capsized and he drowned. Angelica was later charged with murder as investigators discovered that she had removed the drain plug from Vincent's kayak. This case received widespread media attention due to the bizarre circumstances surrounding his death and the conflicting testimony of witnesses and experts. This is Twisted Travel and True Crime, and I'm your host, Sandy. Believe it or not, this podcast is closing in on its 100th episode. I want to take a second to express how grateful I am that so many of you have taken this journey with me. Thank you for helping the podcast grow, for your encouragement, and for sticking with me through all these episodes. Let's get started. Angelika Graswald grew up in Rezenechna, Latvia, a small village near the Russian border. Her home is known for its forests, castle ruins, and abandoned Soviet-era buildings. Angelika was the daughter of a police officer, who would eventually change careers becoming a trucking company administrator, and her mother was a homemaker. She spent her youth, as many kids did, enjoying annual summer camping trips, swimming, playing volleyball, and fishing. She'd go to college for a couple years, but at age 20, she decided to take an academic leave. She hoped to learn a new language or experience some new things and maybe see the world. She worked several menial jobs before her then-boyfriend helped her place an ad as an au pair in a newspaper in Oslo. The first call came from a Norwegian couple living in Greenwich, Connecticut. Angelica was thrilled with the prospect of heading to America for a while, and she quickly took the job. She began nannying for twin two-year-old boys and a five-year-old girl. The job proved to be the hardest job she'd ever had. The house was huge, four stories tall, and it was under construction. In the midst of the construction work, she was responsible for all the cooking, cleaning, and taking care of kids and dogs. So she was basically a mother, it sounds like. She felt like she was responsible for everything in the household. After six months, she quit, and having no place to go, but she was secure in the knowledge that no matter what happened, she did have a return ticket home and enough money for cab fare to the airport. She needed money, so she quickly began looking for a new job. The night before her 21st birthday, she walked into a bar in Stamford, Connecticut, and was hired on the spot. Now that she had secured an income, she felt much more comfortable managing things on her own. She spent the next 13 years working, studying, and dating in the area. While in her early 20s, she was briefly married to a man that she met through a mutual friend. But that marriage was like a phone call in the middle of the night. First came the ring, and then they woke up. It didn't work out, but they divorced on good terms. Her real passion was photography, but she took Spanish and business courses at the community college while sometimes working as a camera operator and service consultant in an imaging company, and at other times waitressing and bartending. She'd marry a second time, taking the Graswald name, but that marriage was like a bra. She hooked up behind his back. She'd realized she wasn't happy in her second marriage, and one night she went out with friends to a bar where she met a DJ. A few months later, she left her husband and moved in with him. Her quick marriages would later be explained as loneliness. She had no family in the area, so when she found a good person, she tried to hang on to them until she realized they weren't a good match. A year and a half later, she'd leave the DJ, but stayed in the New York area now, working in bars and restaurants 
until she eventually met Vincent Villafort. By this time, Angelica was 35. She was slim and blonde and beautiful and looked much closer to 25 than 35. Vincent was 46. He was attractive as well and liked to party. He too had been married twice before, and neither had children. After three weeks of dating, Angelica moved into Vincent's apartment, and five months later, Vincent would propose to her with an onion ring. You heard that right. They'd gone out to dinner at a place with a hibachi grill, and an onion ring was the only thing in sight when Vincent decided he wanted to marry Angelica. Vincent was smitten. At the time, he was working as a project manager with the state of New York. One of his friends would say it was love at first sight. Angelica was spunky and loved the outdoors, just like Vincent. He loved her, and he wanted to be around her all the time. He even talked about having kids with her, and he hadn't spoke of having kids before her. Fatherly wasn't a word used to describe Vincent. He was known for his barbecuing skills, his dance moves, and his partying. His nickname was Vinny Schatz, because whenever there was a party, he'd be the one offering up the drinks. He was a fun guy and was known to be very generous. At one point, he had to declare bankruptcy. He'd run out of money because he had kept loaning it to his friends who never paid him back. He'd grown up in New York in a close-knit family and was the youngest of three children. As a child, he too loved spending time outdoors and playing sports. When he and Angelica met, they bonded over a shared love of kayaking and quickly became a couple. Vincent's friends and family thought he was caring and compassionate and deeply committed in his relationship with Angelica. However, they also noted that the couple had a tumultuous relationship, with frequent arguments and disagreements, but despite these challenges, they seemed to grow closer when they planned outdoor adventures together, including exotic trips to the Dominican Republic and Ecuador, and more locally, those famous kayaking trips. It was one of these that they were looking forward to on the afternoon of April 19th. A year before, they had kayaked around the same time, and they hoped to make it a tradition that when the weather began to warm up in New York, they'd pop the kayaks into the Hudson River and paddle their way to Bannerman Island. There, Angelica would get a chance to do what she really loved, which was taking photos. She could toil for hours seeing beauty in everything and trying to capture it. Vincent preferred spicier photography, he hoped to get some pictures of Angelica wearing something skimpy. He had spoken to a friend about their kayaking plans the night before, when the couple were out partying with friends. This friend said, Vinny, are you crazy? The water is choppy and it's really cold. You shouldn't go. But Vincent had made up his mind, and when he did, he could be stubborn. He'd wanted to stay out partying that night, maybe even go to a strip club with some of his friends, but Angelica was tired. She was quiet and wanted to go home. They had a bit of an argument about whether to go home or not, but eventually Vincent agreed to head home with Angelica. The next morning, Vincent awoke and was determined to put the kayaks in the water. The days were warming up and spring was in the air. They packed their gear, including their kayaks, paddles, a life jacket for Angelica, a skimpy outfit was packed to change into later for Vincent's benefit, as well as some beers and snacks. By the time they arrived at the boat launch, the weather was chilly and overcast. Temperatures were in the low 60s, and the winds were gusting up to 30 miles an hour. They were dressed in pants and sweatshirts, so the air temperature didn't bother them too much. 
The water temperature was a frigid 46, but they didn't plan on getting wet. Well, not soaking wet, anyway. They had kayaked plenty of times before and had never needed wetsuits or other cold-water gear. As they peered across the river, they studied the water. The water conditions weren't perfect, but the scenery was. A kayak trip to Bannerman Castle is described as taking a leisurely paddle across the Hudson River. A quick paddle around the island and a tour of the castle and then a short paddle home normally took only three hours. And along the way, you wouldn't believe your eyes. The water catches the sun sparkling on the surface as you steer past palisades, marinas, and mountains. When you arrive at Palapal Island, Bannerman Castle sits there, crumbling but imposing. Perhaps it was the lure of the scenery, the anticipation of adventure, Vincent's stubbornness or Angelica's cunning that kept them moving forward with their kayaking plans. Just after 4 p.m., they launched the kayaks. They made the trip to the island safely, and when they arrived, they headed up the stairs toward the castle. They talked about Angelica changing into the fishnet stockings and heels she'd brought along for the sexy photo shoot, but she had changed her mind. It was simply too cold. Instead, they walked around, drank their beers, and took pictures. At 7 p.m., Angelica texts a friend that they were getting ready to leave. They paddled toward the other side of the island, intending to make a quick stop there, but quickly called it off. The sun was setting, the wind was picking up, and the waves were much bigger. Plus, the tide was heading out, which meant the return trip would be much more strenuous. This area of the Hudson River is heavily affected by tides. This means that sometimes the river runs in two directions. It also means that conditions can change rapidly, especially when the wind and currents are high and opposing. If the wind is with the current, the water can be calm, but if the wind opposes the current, the waves build up dangerously and quickly. This is what happened while Angelica and Vincent were on Bannerman Island. The waves had built to three feet. When they climbed back in their kayaks and pushed offshore, Vincent was enjoying the rough water and was playing around. He pulled out in front of Angelica and said, Baby, this is an adventure of a lifetime as he rocked and rolled along the growing waves. A local resident, who was out walking his dog near the river, reported seeing the couple paddling their kayaks upstream. He observed that they were moving slowly against the current and the waves due to the wind. Another witness, who was out on a boat with his family, saw the couple on the river. He said it seemed like they were paddling along and splashing each other and having a good time. But he also mentioned that the waves were big enough to tip a kayak over and that it would be tough to paddle against the wind and current on a day like that. As they paddled toward their vehicle, Angelica noticed that Vincent's kayak was sitting lower in the water. It looked like it was filling up. Then suddenly, he's in the water, holding onto a seat cushion in one hand, his dry bag and his kayak in the other. Angelica rushes toward him to try to help. According to her, she saw his paddle floating and hooked it to her kayak. So she's sitting on the surface of the water, trying to keep her kayak facing into the wind and waves so she doesn't tip over. Vince's body is now in the water, along with his kayak that's also partially submerged. The water, like ice-cold hands, grabs at Vince's body and pulls him and his kayak along with the current. He's moving away from her quickly, and that's when he yells for her to call 911. 
Every move Angelica made in the minutes and hours following that 911 call would be closely scrutinized. At approximately 7.40, Angelica called 911. In the recording, she alternates between sounding panicked and calm. She tells the dispatcher their location in the river and asks them to please call anybody who can help. She explains that she and her fiancé were kayaking and that his kayak flipped over and he's in the water and cold. He'd been in the water for a little while before she made the phone call and within five minutes he'd started to lose gross motor control. He was losing the ability to hold on. The kayak was sinking under the water now and the current kept dragging him further away. When she was asked whether he was wearing a life jacket, she said no, but he's holding on to a small floating cushion. She explains to the dispatcher, I can't get to him. It's really windy and the waves are coming in and I can't paddle to him. In the recording, the wind is audible, as is the slapping of waves against the side of her kayak. She and the dispatcher can't hear each other for a few seconds. I'm sure it wasn't easy for her to keep the kayak under control and dial the phone or hold it at the same time. Hold on, baby, she yells, but five minutes into the call, she can't see Vincent anymore. She starts crying, and the dispatcher urges her to stay calm and paddle in the direction of the lights coming from emergency rescue vehicles on the shore. I'm not worried about myself, she says. I'm worried about him. This is a worry that would haunt her for the rest of her life. It certainly would for the following four years. As she tried to steer her kayak towards the shore, it would eventually capsize, so she's floating in the freezing cold water. But luckily, citizen rescuers were nearby and helped her out. She'd be quickly transported to shore and then to a hospital where she was treated for hypothermia. Rescuers began their search for Vincent. It was nearing 8 p.m. and it was getting dark. They searched for hours, but they weren't able to find him. The search continued the next day. They found his kayak submerged not far from where he had gone down, but his body was nowhere to be found. Ten days after Vincent had disappeared into the water, Angelica would return with a volunteer crew and supplies to make a memorial flower wreath. She'd been in touch with police over that time and did what she could to aid with their search. When she stepped off the boat onto Bannerman Island that day, three investigators were waiting for her. She greeted them with hugs, but she didn't know at the time that they were pursuing a murder investigation and that she was a suspect. Their suspicions had begun the night Vincent had drowned. I've already told you that during the 911 call, the dispatcher urged her to start paddling towards safety, and soon after is when her kayak flipped over and she fell into the water, was rescued, and hospitalized. Well, while at the hospital, officers noted that she acted strangely. One would later testify that Angelica seemed calm and didn't really show any emotion, which was unexpected. Additionally, a witness from a yacht club told officers that it appeared that Angelica had flipped her kayak intentionally just moments before the rescue boat arrived. Over the next few weeks, the case against her intensified. She attended a memorial night for Vincent with friends at a local bar, during which she sang Hotel California and seemed a little too happy for someone who lost her fiancé, according to one of her friends. At a vigil held in Vince's memory, she was seen laughing and smiling, and she reportedly told a friend that she was glad he was dead because she was no longer trapped in the relationship.
Vincent's sister, Laura, came to the police with a possible motive. Angelica had no money and no job. She depended solely on Vincent's generosity. She said that a few months after they started dating, Vincent had made Angelica a primary beneficiary on two life insurance policies. They had a combined value of $550,000. At the time, he had told his sister that it was a way to claim Angelica as a domestic partner and put her on his health insurance. Maybe she'd wanted that money. Vincent's family scrutinized Angelica's Facebook posts after Vincent died. She posted a picture of herself kayaking with the caption, If only I could have paddled harder, damn it. Another photo was of herself doing a one-legged wheel pose, a yoga pose, on the shore of the Hudson. And she posted a video of herself cartwheeling and laughing, all within days after Vince died. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't be posting things like that if I were deeply grieving the loss of my loved one. That being said, she certainly wouldn't be the first female to be questioned about her actions after someone close to her had died. Amanda Knox, who served four years in an Italian prison for the 2007 murder of Meredith Kircher. They were both foreign exchange students at the time. She was placed under suspicion for doing a cartwheel, which she said she never did. She was later exonerated. She would describe the days in between Meredith Kircher's murder and her own arrest similarly. She said, I went through a range of emotions very quickly. Denial, grief, fear, relief that I wasn't dead. I was experiencing a heightened sense of perception, heightened energy, and an adrenaline rush. Something big was happening, and it was overwhelming. She said she fell back on things that were familiar and comfortable, her boyfriend and yoga. But looking back on it, she believed she was stuck in a feedback loop. People were telling her that things were going to be okay, and she was telling them that she was going to be okay. So she acted like things were okay, but she overcompensated. In other words, she was trying to be happy. The phrase, fake it till you make it, comes to mind. Amanda Knox was exonerated, and the real murderer was caught. Amanda became an advocate for people who have been wrongly convicted, and she believes the way women's behavior is scrutinized following traumatic events has implications. She believes that women who don't express grief in the way that we expect them to triggers us. For police officers who are incentivized to get a conviction or confession, unexpected behavior might smell like criminal intent. Angelica's actions, deemed strange by many, would come up at her trial, and they weren't the only thing pointing to her guilt. When Angelica arrived on Bannerman Island to place her memorial bouquet, The investigators led her away from her friends and asked her to show them pertinent locations from her day on the island with Vincent. They wanted her to retrace her steps. Soon they were sitting down on a dirt trail, and the investigators told her that they knew she was hiding something from them. They discussed a small plug that had been missing from Vincent's kayak. They wanted to know where it was. Angelica readily admitted that she had taken it out and stashed it in a drawer in their apartment. This plug was a fitting for a drain hole. It was located at the end of one of the kayaks, but well above water, and it was about three-quarters of an inch across. She explained that the reason she had taken it out was because their cat had been messing with it, and she didn't want it to get all chewed up. The investigators thought she had done this intentionally, 
because she wanted his kayak to fill up and for him to drown that day. They also asked about the location of Angelica's missing cell phone. She said she had lost it while on the water, but a witness said he remembered she had it with her on the rescue boat. Angelica began sobbing and holding her stomach, which drew the attention of her friends and volunteers. They could hear that the discussion between the investigators and Angelica was getting tense. One volunteer asked her if she was okay, but Angelica sent her away. Two hours later, she was taken to the New York State Police Barracks, where she was interrogated for hours. They began by asking Angelica to describe what happened that night one more time. The investigator said, It's therapy for you. You'll feel better if you tell us. Believing her innocence, Angelica didn't think she needed a lawyer. According to one source I read, the average interrogation lasts about 30 to 90 minutes. Those involving false confessions tends to run over eight hours. Angelica's lasted 11. Throughout the very long interview, Angelica was steadfast in maintaining that she didn't kill her fiancé. About halfway through, the police read her her Miranda rights and asked her if she understood them. She said she did, but later in the interview she asked who Miranda was. It was also reported that Angelica took Vincent's paddle away from him after he went into the water. Police asked her about this. She denied it, saying that she grabbed onto the paddle as it drifted towards her, or maybe he pushed it toward her. His hands were full between hanging onto the kayak, his belongings, and a small floating cushion. What she did admit to, at multiple times during the interrogation and to this day, was that their relationship wasn't perfect, and she had mixed feelings about her fiancé's death. She spoke at length about their sex life, saying that Vincent pressured her into having threesomes and engaging in dominant, submissive role-playing. She didn't like it. She said, He wanted me to be fully his, sexually. He wanted to own me, and I'm not a sub. Hell no. Despite these differences, she said she still wanted to work things out with him and have his children. But now that he's gone, she felt free in a way. At one point, the interrogator seemed to be leading her into confession by saying anyone who pressures someone into having threesomes never loved them anyway. And Angelica's response was, Are you saying he didn't love me? Do you know? As the interrogation dragged on, hour after hour, her remarks get stronger and stranger. She says that she sensed Vincent was going to die that day. She said she knew that because she was, and I quote, in tune with the other side. She also said she was glad that he fell into the water, that she fell into the water, rather, because she wanted to know what her fiancé felt like when he fell in. Well, he felt colder than a snowman's fart. We could all tell her that, without falling into the water ourselves. Then she was asked if she took the plug out of the kayak over the winter, as a way of planning her escape, and she said it could be, symbolically. At around one in the morning, she says, Listen, I wanted him dead, and now he's gone, and I'm okay with that now. Now do we have a deal? She then explained that she needed to go home and feed her cats. Her remarks had the police spinning, and four years later, when she looks back at what she said, she was embarrassed. She said, I grew up around the police, and I trusted them, so it was my fault. I was so naive, 
that at one point in the investigation, she'd even tried to give an officer a $10 gift card to thank him. She said she was just being honest about her feelings. The police had told her that it was therapy and not a confession, so she felt she could answer openly. Up until that point, she hadn't told anyone that she felt some relief that Vincent died, and it felt good that she admitted it, but she didn't realize that she'd been a suspect until the interrogation was over and they put her in handcuffs. Based on her so-called confession, her statements given to police, and eyewitnesses, she would be charged with second-degree murder and later manslaughter. Police believed that Angelica had shot or hurt Vincent and then made up the drowning story. For days on end, they looked for his body. The place he had loved to fish and kayak was now searched by rescue boats and helicopters looking for his body. His mother prayed every day for him to be found, whether he was dead or alive. She wanted him home. She woke up, anxious and hopeful that maybe today would be the day he'd be found. While searchers cruised the river, Vincent's loved ones heard the news that left them reeling. They were told that Angelica killed him. She had made statements that implicated herself in the crime. They told her about the missing drain plug and about how she said she took the paddle away from him. His family was shocked and devastated. Angelica's ex-boyfriend, Michael Colvin, was interviewed. He said he didn't believe for a second that Angelica was a killer, but he does remember that she had a dark side. He said she knew how to throw a tantrum. One example he gave was when they broke up, Angelica wanted to keep a cat that the couple had adopted. She threatened to break into his house and take it if he didn't give it to her. He was holding the cat at the time, and he decided to get into his car and drive away. As he was getting into his car with the cat, Angelica lay down in the driveway blocking his exit while telling him repeatedly to give her the cat. He realized he'd never get out of the driveway, so reluctantly he gave it to her. He thought this was pretty extreme behavior, especially since she didn't even have a home to keep the cat in at the time. A friend of Vincent's told Dateline that Angelica could turn violent on Vincent when she was drunk. She had been seen smacking him across the face. He would just look at her calmly and wouldn't get mad, even if she hit him more than once. Two weeks before he died, Vincent had reached out to a friend, expressing some doubts about his relationship. But the next day, he told his friend that he changed his mind. They were going to stay together and work things out. It's pretty clear that their relationship was in a rough patch. Vincent had said so to friends, and Angelica had admitted it during the interrogation, but clarified that it was nothing that she would kill him for. Police didn't disagree. Maybe she didn't hate him. Maybe she was after that insurance money. She certainly wouldn't get it if she was convicted of murder, though. Angelica was in custody when, weeks later, Vincent's body was found by a recreational boater. It was located near West Point, about a mile from where he had originally fallen into the water. By this time, he was pretty much unrecognizable. An autopsy was performed, and the only valuable pieces of information to come from it was that he hadn't been shot, and that his blood alcohol level was .066, which is below the level of being legally drunk. The prosecution planned to present several pieces of evidence to convict Angelica. As we've said, her own statements implicated her in his death. The physical evidence showed that the drain plug had been removed, 
and Vince's paddle was in her possession. Then there was her strange behavior. They would paint her as a sociopath, but the defense would counter, saying that we all have our own way of mourning. They would also turn on an expert in kayaking's testimony. In order to prosecute Angelica, the prosecutors would have to convince a jury that the drain hole, an opening about the size of a penny, caused Vincent's boat to take on water and flip, even though the cockpit or seat area was a far more likely source for the water. It would have been nearly impossible for that kayak to sink in half an hour from a few splashes falling into a penny-sized hole. What was more likely, according to the defense, was that Vincent wasn't protected from the cold water. He wasn't wearing a wetsuit and would have experienced cold water shock the instant he hit the water. Within minutes, he would have lost use of his arms and legs. And within 30 to 60 minutes, he would have lost consciousness. He wasn't wearing a spray skirt, which keeps water from coming in through the cockpit. The opening there was 22 inches wide and 46 inches long, much larger and much more likely to fill with water if waves hit the kayak at the wrong angle. The other thing was that the kayak he owned was a cheap one. Most kayaks are made so that they're impossible to sink. They have air trapped inside them, but Vincent's was one that would sink. He wasn't wearing a life jacket and had no idea that the weather on the day would kick up so violently. On top of everything else, he was drinking. There was no evidence that he had practiced or even knew about techniques for getting back into a kayak once it had tipped over. The defense would also show there was no reasonable expectation that Angelica could have helped him. The first rule of rescue is don't become a victim. She was half his size and not nearly as strong. If he had grabbed onto her kayak, he could have swamped her as well and killed them both. The defense would also show that Vincent knew about the open drain hole. He had actually threaded ropes through that very hole to secure the kayak to the top of his vehicle. A traffic camera captured a shot of the top of the kayak, which showed a rope running right through it. At this point, it seemed the case came down to whether Angelica was negligent in helping Vincent out of the water, and her weird statements and actions in the days following his death. The defense argued that her statements to police were coerced, and that the prosecution didn't have enough evidence to prove that she had intentionally caused Vincent's death. They believed that the choppy water and cold temperatures contributed to his demise, and that there was no definitive evidence that her actions caused him to drown. They also presented a testimony from a toxicology expert, one who stated that Vincent's blood alcohol level was likely above the legal limit at the time of his death, which they argued could have contributed to his drowning. Finally, they presented evidence suggesting that Angelica may have been suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder following the incident. This could have affected her statements to the police and her behavior in the aftermath of Vincent's death. Angelica would end up making an agreement with prosecutors to plead guilty to the lesser felony charge of criminally negligent homicide. She admitted that she could have perceived the risks associated with being out on the water that day. She would be sentenced to a one-and-a-half to four-year term in state prison. She was released after serving just two-and-a-half years behind bars. She maintains that she never intended to kill Vincent. After her release, she would pose for a photo shoot 
and an interview with Elle magazine. One of the photos shows her staring at the camera, with her face just below the surface of the water in a bathtub. Many people found this to be very distasteful. Vincent's family took her to court to prevent her from collecting her portion of Vincent's life insurance. She was still eligible to receive it because she hadn't been convicted of murder. Vincent's family were unsuccessful, and Angelica walked away with a good portion of it, most of which she paid to her legal team. In the 2019 interview with Elle magazine, she said, Vince loved me. I loved him. He had mentioned that he would die for me if need be and I feel like he did, so I could live. He saved me, in a way. She explains that she wouldn't have called 911 if he hadn't told her to, and probably would have drowned trying to save him instead of paddling toward shore. They both got careless, and it cost him his life. Vincent's family believes she's guilty of murdering their son. I want to know what you guys think. It's a tough one, but having some experience on kayaks myself, I can fairly easily accept the idea of accidental death. I believe that when he fell in, there was little to nothing she would have been able to do to save him. She wouldn't have been able to paddle to shore with him hanging onto the kayak, but they both would have been more visible to rescuers if he had been able to hang on. The downside to that idea is she probably would have fallen in herself because she wouldn't have been able to control the kayak with him dangling off it. Well, there you have it. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, write, review it, tell a friend, and maybe even become a sponsor. There are links to do that as well as to social media in the show description. There are pictures to go with this case that will be put up on Facebook and Instagram, and you can share your opinions with me there or through Patreon. As always, I'd like to wish you all fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds.